name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. It's Tuesday, March 9th, 2021, day 358 of The Shut-In. Today, I spoke with Krista. Krista is a Native American, specifically uh, a Diné, a member of the tribe that we would, most of us, know as Navajo. And she is a journalist. Uh, she writes for the Navajo Times, which is a daily newspaper that services the Navajo reservation and the areas surrounding. It's published out of a place called Window Rock, Arizona. And in her work as a reporter, Krista has really been on the front line of the COVID breakout and breakdown in Navajo country. And it's a place that was hit extremely hard by the disease, both in the immediate sense of a lot of infections, a lot of people sick, a lot of people dying. And also, as she'll speak about in cultural impact, it's a society and a tradition that relies very much on gathering and on an oral tradition of history, the religion, the literature, the poetry, the music of the Diné is one that is passed on from person to person and from elder people to younger ones. And so as you'll hear from Krista, losing their elderly and losing them in a way that they could not gather around them and speak to them and hear what they had to say face-to-face -face was a particularly difficult experience for that community. This is also, this interview was a particularly difficult experience, I think, for Krista. She was very clearly emotional. There were some moments where she was really having a hard time continuing to speak. And the things she was describing were very raw for her and very present, even when she was talking about things that happened months ago, nearly a year ago. I, I wondered as we were speaking, you know, a as a gatherer of stories, as someone who goes out and collects stories from other people, if she is someone who is often asked to tell her own story. And I wonder if maybe that's not the case. And perhaps... This is one of the few times she's been invited to speak about what she's been through in any kind of organized way, as opposed to reporting on what others are going through. So what you're about to hear is a bit, is a bit of a roller coaster. Um, it gets very emotional, but I'm very, very glad that we had this conversation. I'm very, very glad and very honored that she opened up the way that she did and talked about her experience, the experience of her neighbors, the experience of her family in the way that she did. And I think we got to a place, a, a conclusion that was really surprising, interesting. Um, one that I hadn't heard before. So I hope you will join me on this ride and listen all the way through. Um, and with that, 
I will introduce you to Krista. So tell just for for the benefit of people who don't know, tell tell me about where you live and the job that you do there. I am originally from Kaito, Arizona. It's in the Western Navajo Nation. It's near Lake Powell, near the city of Page, Arizona. So it's really rural, maybe less than 3,000 people, maybe. So I write for the Navajo Times. I write a lot of my stories from this side. So, and then I send them back to my editor, Dwayne Bial in Windorock. And what sorts of things do you write about? Do you have a particular beat or uh, or specialty or kinds of stories hey, you like to cover? I always tell everybody that I write about everything except sports. I don't know the sports lingo. So a lot of my stories come from the communities. So I, there are 18 communities in Western Navajo. So that's pretty much half of the Navajo Nation. So I would travel from community to community looking for features or news. So a lot of the news comes from the chapter meetings, or sometimes I would find a feature from some of the people that I meet along the way, and I'll stop to interview them and take some photos. In all of this, I mean, honestly, so I'm, I'm sitting here in New York City. I, I've, I've driven through Arizona once, <laughs> you know, and I... I, I read a Tony Hillerman book when I was a teenager. And other than that, that's everything I've ever learned about the Navajo Nation and the place where you live. And and I feel like it's a place, other than a few reports that things were have been bad there under COVID, I don't I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about what you guys have been going through or or what it's been like there. And I'm I'm really curious to hear that story. Um t- tell me, I mean if you don't mind, maybe let's go back to the beginning. Maybe sort okay. of February, March of last year, what what was the sort of the initial outbreaks like, the initial reaction, the initial understanding of, of what this disease was in, in the community there? So we got our first reports from this small community called Chilchibito. It's near central Navajo around early March. So we're about just that at one year, one year mark. Uh, we got a report that there was an outbreak at a, a church gathering there, a rally. So we weren't really sure. It was kind of just rumors at first. And I was given that beat, that story, because it's Chilchibito is on my side of my coverage area. So I was kind of hesitant at first. I didn't want to go there. So I went ahead. I What I like to say is I put on my combat boots and braided my hair and I put on my PPE gear, my mask, my um, gloves and whatever I needed to go there to take some photos and interview. I was trying to get people to tell me stories about who was there, what was going on, what was being talked about. People didn't really want to talk. And later I found out the pastor, the head pastor there didn't want anyone to talk to the media didn't want it to be known. So what I did was I kind of waited, waited for about two months, hoping that they would contact me back. And sure enough, he did. He was able to tell me what happened, who was inside and what was being talked about. And that really was really an eye opener. It was really frustrating and also maddening as well. 
And can you tell me more about that, uh, what you found out, what you learned? Well, a lot of the people there, it was all for a ribbon, like a prize to see which church would bring as many people as they could. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 200 people were there, I believe. And from there, it's just spread like wildfire. So, I mean, after that initial, I don't know what the right word is, that, that being sort of the epicenter of spread within within the reservation, within the nation there, tell me about the the extent of sickness that you've seen among people there. You know, how 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 fast did it spread? How deep did it spread in the community over the months following that? So I would go to sleep every night um, with tons of text messages coming in, just people telling me who died. I was keeping a list. My list was getting long. It was front and back pages. <laughs> it was just really heartbreaking for me just because I knew them and they're my people. I've talked to them over the years of my reporting. So just knowing that they're dying one after another and seeing their GoFundMe pages for their funeral expenses. And one in particular was my former, my former teachers from elementary school. And her family said goodbye over, over Zoom, over uh, an iPad. And just hearing her family, hearing her brother talk about that moment, and it, it's just really heartbreaking. It was, it was like it was never going to end. It was not going to stop at all. And it tore apart communities, tore apart families. I mean, we've already been struggling anyway with water, with, with so many issues like diabetes, um, other diseases. And on top of that, a pandemic, a coronavirus killing more people, killing our elders, killing our culture. Yeah. And just talking about it, it makes me want to cry. Take, take your time. I, I really do appreciate you opening up like this. I know it's not easy. Um, when people began to realize that this was serious, this was spreading... T- tell me about the um, uh, what sort of information were you getting um, about the disease? What kind of um, understanding did people have about things like wearing masks, <laughs> maintaining distance, and and how how open were people to those ideas? Were people resistant to to doing those things, or were they embracing those measures? A lot of people didn't want to wear masks at first. Um, I've heard stories of fights at storefronts. Um, I've heard some say that it, the virus was fake or that it wasn't real, that masks don't work, or that it, was, it wasn't necessary. Like It was just all the media telling fake news or fake stories. And that we were just driving it out of proportion is what I heard from the, the locals. Now, nowadays, everywhere you look, you'll see a native wearing mask or taking uh, extra precautions like washing their hands or using hand sanitizer. 
like for myself, I carry around a bucket of Clorox and and soap and wherever I go. Was there difficulty in sort of getting supplies and things like PPE and, you know, uh, particularly maybe last spring, last summer when things were getting bad? Was that a challenge where you are? For me, as, as a writer, yes, it was. So I would be writing stories and also making my own masks out of cloth or um, whatever was available to me. I was able to sew at night and write during the day and read during the day. So I was up at all hours of the night, all hours of the day, just working, working on my stuff and working, making these masks. I, I just didn't want to get sick at all. My colleagues, they have mentioned that that it was get hard getting PPE as well. Um, so just recently I was able to obtain some N95s. So I'm really happy about that. Finally. You know, as, as, as a writer, as a journalist, you know, I, 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 you've been saying you've been, you've been covering this throughout and writing about it throughout. Are there any particular stories that you can share that particularly stuck out to you? as being particularly poignant or particularly successful in, in capturing the moment of what people are experiencing there? Anything you wrote about or experienced or heard that you, you'd like to share? Probably the family stories. They're the ones that stand out the most because just hearing these people grieve um, their loss or uh, just recently I covered a cookout and they were able to feed uh, lots of people, um, hundreds of people. Just recently, it was a masked event. It was a drive-through event, and they butchered sheep. They had all the traditional foods. It has so much meaning, um, like the sheep. It's life. It's water. And what they told me was that the food heals. And that it brings together people, which it did. And that they were hoping that it could help people heal, especially with all the loss that we've had throughout the entire year. So this little gathering was able to do that. It was able to bring people together. It was able to show love, show that we are healing and that we can get through it if we stick together. Do you feel that in the community at large? Are people starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel or uh, starting to feel more optimistic now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Before, it was just depressing. Uh, people just really sad. And we understood that as writers, as journalists, and photographers. And we would grieve with them and we would cry with them because... These are our people, and because we are all related here on an abomination, one way or another. So being able to uh, come from that and look forward, and I, I think people are happier, a little happier. And just trying to social distance is pretty pretty hard for my people. I know that. So trying the best we we can. Um, telling stories, being in ceremony was some of those things that, that we miss and that I know that we can't wait to get back together and do those things. 
um, a lot of people are starting to feel that 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 weight off their shoulders that we are seeing the end of the tunnel, which is what our physicians here on the Navajo Nations always say that the vaccine's coming, the vaccine's coming, there's the light at the end of the tunnel. And we believe that. Um, you, you mentioned something earlier that I, I wanted to pull out and speak about more where you talked about the loss of elders, um, the loss of the older generation being particularly poignant. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could, uh, particularly sad, particularly a particular loss. Um, can you tell me more about that and, and what it means to lose that generation and, and what that loss entails? Probably language language and the culture and traditions. I started speaking my language around five years old. I learned it from my grandmother and my grandfather. They were able to teach me. So, and I, I love covering song and dances because that's where all the traditions are, all our culture and stories that you won't hear anywhere else. That's that circle you will hear those kinds of things because of a lot of our young people, they don't speak the language. They don't know the culture. They don't know how to do things, butcher or make bread, make tortilla, fry bread. That's where we learn those things. That's where we gain our knowledge to teach the future, to teach the young people. So losing that it's truly nearly terrible. And moving into the future, our young people won't know those things. There's a saying here that a lot of our elders are, they're at the equivalent of people with PhDs. And I, I truly believe that. They carry all that knowledge and they carry all that strength ancestors and the prayers that they carry that's all a loss and we will lose all of that when we lose our elders <laughs> sorry no take your time please <sighs> sorry <laughs> so true <laughs> And I think all of my colleagues and the Native journalists will tell you that. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yeah, thank you. Um, you're also a, a, a teller of stories and a preserver of, of, of history. Um, in what you do, have you thought about what you can do to help preserve those things that might otherwise be lost and how you might be um, part of? Probably or write a book. I think keep telling the stories of the elders, which is why I like writing for Navajo Times 
and I, I care about our stories because I truly believe that only Native journalists can tell the stories that we can. Hoping that one day that the young people will use these things in, in their future. I, I appreciate really how, how, how much you've shared and, and how emotional you've let yourself be and how open you've let yourself be. It's a, it's a great gift and I really do appreciate it. Um, what do you see for the next few months and beyond as you're looking forward and looking more positively, do you think things will return to normal or whatever normal was or how they were before? Do you think they will be different forever? Do you think they will perhaps be better? Do you think they will be worse? What do you see for the future there after this experience? I think, I think things won't go back exactly the way they were. I think this was supposed to happen because we needed to change because the old ways aren't working, just like our medicine people say that this is supposed to happen. This is cleansing the earth. There's a story on a mountain called Doko Oslid. It's the San Francisco peaks near Flagstaff. So the mountain is sacred to several tribes, including the Navajo and Hopi. And there is a plant up there. It's called Chilorone. It's the San Francisco Peaks ragwort. The medicine people say that the, the snowball resort up there shouldn't have developed. Right now it's currently expanding and they're saying that this plant is being disturbed because of the development and that's what they say and believe and they've taken photos and this resort is continuing to expand and desecrating and damaging the mountain and damaging the herbs and they just don't understand they are not understanding the not Navajo is, this is why the virus is happening. This is why death is upon us, is what they say. This is what they teach. I think just moving forward that we're never going to be normal again. This is how it has to be. T tell me more about that. That Explain that, that this is what has to be because because it's forcing us to stay home and <laughs> be more gentle on the, the earth around us? Or why, why? Why did this have to happen? Well, uh, cleansing the earth, like I said, um, there has to be some sort of cleansing. I'm thinking that this must happen in order for things to move forward. I think the old ways weren't working and I think that's how the medicine people have explained it so I, I believe that as well cleansed of what sorry cleansed when you say the earth needed to be cleansed cleansed of of what what needs to be washed off it what is being removed uh, people uh, uh, desecration um, people damaging the land the water the earth everything uh, just recently, um, 
the Navajo generating station, it was imploded, it was a demolished. Uh, so that's also part of cleansing. That's clearing the air because for 50 years, it's been polluting the air that we breathe. So that's part of it. That's cleansing. We're getting into some stuff now. Um, I know. <laughs> no, and I, I, I'm going to make you stay there for a minute. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I've been in some dark places this year too, both about the disease and about politics and about just, and I wonder sometimes if humanity can be cleansed <laughs> or if we're sort of always going to fall into being horrible to each other and being horrible to the world around us. If that's just sort of our nature as people, do you think it's possible for us to get back to, as people, to get back to a better, healthier way to be? I think so. I mean, uh, we've already showed that through food boxes and helping one another and showing love in the middle of the pandemic, uh, helping one another, like the water, the bottles of water coming to the Navajo Nation, that, that's, that's love, that's caring and helping I, I think we're supposed to join back together, connect again as people without discrimination and racism. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. This has been The Big Shut-In. My name is David Hoffman, and I produce and story edit the show, along with Tanya Mohammed. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. It's a production of Race Car Radio, racecarradio.com. If you have a story you think would be a good fit for the show, please do reach out. The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com. <laughs>